Romans 2. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll want to turn it to page 1126, Romans chapter 2. We've been spending the last few weeks working our way through this chapter. Romans 2, Paul is warning his Jewish contemporaries that their trust in their Jewishness is inadequate to justify them before God. That their heritage, that their privilege is insufficient to make them right before a holy God. They too need a righteousness that comes from God only by faith in Christ. We've been working here for now, as I say, a number of weeks examining this section and process, I've been trying to apply it to the young people of this church, those that are growing up within the family of God here, those that are experiencing privilege, tremendous privilege by growing up among a community of believers. You too have the privilege of constant contact with both the people of God and the word of God. And thus there is danger for you, the same kind of danger that existed for the Jews of the first century. And the danger is is that your constant contact with the things of God can cause your heart to grow cold towards them. That you can find yourself inadvertently trusting in your external privilege rather than in a personal relationship with Christ as your Savior. You're in danger of failing to see your own depravity. You can look outside And you can see the wickedness outside the church, but what you fail to see is the wickedness inside your own heart. That is a mortal danger. That is an eternal danger. So it's my prayer as we work through chapter 2, and someone asked me the other day, why are you taking so long going through this chapter? And the reason I'm taking so long going through this chapter is because there are a number of you out here that do not know Jesus Christ. You don't. You don't. And until you sense the weight of your sin and recognize your need for that Savior, you are in danger. Paul says in verse 1, Therefore, you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O man, that when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will somehow escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. 
There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. And that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. The reason we're doing it, as I said earlier, is because even good kids or maybe I should say especially good kids, go to hell. This fourth danger, and we began looking at it last week, is the danger of, in, of ignoring judgment. The danger of ignoring judgment. Of thinking that somehow it's not coming to me, or if it does, that God will judge in, with a different scale. He'll be more lenient to me. He'll look more favorably upon me. We learned, though, last week that there is no partiality with God, right? Verse 11, there is no partiality with God. God does not show favoritism. God does not look upon one person and then look on another and judge the first person more leniently than the other. There's no partiality with God. We also learned last week that God judges our works. The basis of his evaluation is our works. It's our deeds versus 7 through 10 in chapter 2. Paul labors that point. He's going to evaluate our lives because it's our lives that demonstrate the reality of a faith or lack thereof. God favors neither Jew nor Gentile, the text tells us. Neither His chosen people nor those who are outside the covenant. God has no favorites when it comes to evaluating their deeds. But there's an obvious question that would arise in the mind of the Jews and, and uh, perhaps in your mind as well when you go through this. And that is, how can God judge the Gentiles' deeds? How can He judge their lives, their works, when they don't have His law? And thus they can't know what He really expects of them. How, how can God fairly judge the nations of the world? What about the pagans on the other side of the world who don't have access to the Scriptures? How can God judge their works? How do they know what it is that God expects of them? Doesn't that make Him unfair? I mean, he's, Paul just said there is no partiality with God, but doesn't that make Him unfair if He's got one standard and then a second one? Paul's going to answer that question. In verses before us this morning, 12 through 16. This is really the second part of the message, as I said, that began last week. The danger of ignoring judgment. The third part of that that we didn't get to last week is that God judges based on His law. His judgment comes based on His law. Paul's going to demonstrate for us here in verses 12 through 16 that everyone has God's law 
either in full or in part. That's going to be his point. That God can judge by his law and he can do so impartially because everyone has his law. They have it either in full or they have it in part. Everybody. Everybody. Thus, everybody is a law breaker. A law breaker. Now, the reason this discussion is so important and it appears in the context here, Paul addressing the first century Jew. And by application, the reason it's so important for us here today in Upland and for you growing up within the church here is because unless you're convinced that God judges impartially, you will delude yourself into thinking that somehow he's going to give you a pass. You must be absolutely persuaded that his judgment comes impartially. Lest you think that somehow you are in a privileged position because of your contact with him and his word and his community of believers and that somehow you're going to get a free ride. Paul says he judges on the law and everyone has it. Now, this is a verses 12 to 16 is a difficult piece of scripture to kind of unsort. So let me uh, let me see if I can do this for you. Exegetically, there's a conjunction that appears in uh, verses 12, 13 and 14. It's the it's a little word for and that kind of gives us the clue to pull this thing apart and understand the argument that Paul is advancing. So just take a look at the text. here. You see, verse 12 begins with four. Verse 13 begins with four. Verse 14 begins with four. You see that? That'll help us to to unsort this. Paul makes a strong statement in verse 11. There is no partiality with God. He will now elaborate that principle in the section before us, 12 through 16. And he will do so by taking up two groups of people, two groups, two groups that are introduced to us again in verse 12. Those who have sinned without the law and those who have sinned under the law. Do you see them? They are the elaboration of the principle that's stated in verse 11. So Paul's going to explain this by applying that to these two groups. And he's going to do it, you know, the end of verse 12. He's going to talk about those who sin under or yes, sin under the law and are being judged by the law. Do you see that at the end of verse 12? He'll then take that up further in verse 13. He'll then in verses 14 through 15, go back to those that are introduced in the first part of verse 12, and he'll explain how it applies to them. As I said, the conjunction four kind of ties this all together for you. So let's take a a look at what he says here. Verse 12. There is no partiality with God for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. That's the elaboration of the principle. Now, when Paul uses the terminology of the law, it's a common term with Paul. He's referring to the Old Testament in whole or in part. He's referring to the the Old Testament in whole or in part. And typically, he's referring to the Mosaic law within the Old Testament, that portion of it that kind of comprises the Mosaic law. So you're pretty safe when uh, Paul talks about the law to think about the Mosaic law. That is the written codification of the law of God given to Israel at Sinai. 
Here, Paul introduces these two groups of people. He speaks about those who are without the law. Do you see that? Verse 12, he introduces them first. Then he speaks about those who are under the law. This is Jews and Gentiles. This is another way of talking about Jews and Gentiles and their relation to the law given at Mount Sinai. The Gentiles are without law. They're introduced first here. And the reason they are without law is that they had no knowledge of it or responsibility to obey its commands and its ordinances. That's what it means by being without law. They were not there at Mount Sinai. They are not the ones who said, Exodus 19, verse 8, all that the Lord God says we will do. As Israel's forefathers had done. So they are without the law. They are outside the covenants of Israel. We talked about that when we read Ephesians 2 earlier this morning. Those that are under the law here in verse 12 are those who are the recipients of God's law. That is God's special revelation. God's uh, encodement of His law in written form given to the people. By the great lawgiver Moses himself. So it's the two groups of people. It's Jews and Gentiles. Now Paul clearly states here in verse 12 that they're both going to be judged. You see that? Without the law will also perish. Those who are sinned under the law will be judged by the law. That is condemnation and judgments coming to both groups of people. Neither one escape it. They will both be punished. They will perish, Paul says, verse 12. They will perish. Apalumi in the Greek, and it, and it means to be ruined or destroyed. They will be ruined. They will be destroyed. Another way to translate it is they will be rendered useless for their intended purpose. What is the intended purpose of all people? It is to glorify God. It is to worship God. It is to live in fellowship with your Creator. And they will be rendered useless for that purpose. They will be ruined. They will be destroyed. Jesus uses the same term, Matthew 10, verse 28, to refer to the fate of those who are thrown into hell. And so that's what it's really talking about. They will be perished in the sense that they will go to the place of torment. The Jew will receive the punishment as well, and his condemnation will come by the law or through the law, verse 12. He will be weighed against what he knows what he says he believes, and he will be found wanting. He will be found guilty. For the Gentile, though, what Moses had to say really plays no part in their judgment, their condemnation. They, they're not measured by it. So what about the pagan on the other side of the world? Paul's answer is that they're not measured by the Mosaic law at all. It doesn't apply to them. It doesn't impact them. They're measured by a different standard. God will not judge anyone by a standard they have never received. There is no partiality with God. He doesn't show favoritism. People are judged based on what they know. That is to demonstrate itself in what they do. That's a huge and important principle of judgment. God judges people based upon the light that they have, not the light that they don't have. The Gentile didn't know the Mosaic Law, thus they're not guilty of violating it. 
the Jew did have the Mosaic law and thus they are guilty of violating it. That means every time that you um, come under the teaching of the Word of God, guess what? Your accountability ratchets which way? Up. Up. The higher standard that comes by knowing more produces a greater degree of guilt when you fail to live to that which you know. And it also produces a greater degree of condemnation for your failure. I mean, Paul intimates as much in verse 9. Right? Look back up there. He says, There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew. What? First. It will come to the Jew first. Then to the Greek. Those who have opportunity to hear the Word of God have been given a tremendous advantage by God. If the advantage is squandered, then the judgment that follows will be all the more terrible. It's a serious thing to sit under the preaching of the Word of God. It's not to be taken lightly. Every time it happens, the stakes go up. Jesus said in Luke 12, verses 47 and 48, the slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will shall receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. And from everyone who has been given much shall be much required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. There's a level of accountability that comes. Paul saying it. Here in chapter 2, he's speaking to his countrymen, to the Jewish nation, and he's saying, your level of accountability is very high because you have been made partakers of the covenant promises. You know the law of Moses. It is taught to you from your childhood on up. You have the written revelation of God in your hands. The Gentiles don't. You see why I get so provoked about those growing up in this church because you are in the exact same place. You have all of that privilege that comes to you. Thus, your accountability is sky high. Verse 13, Paul speaking of those who are judged under the law. For not the hearers of the law will be just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. The Jews are judged, Paul says, because they are hearers and not doers. People have a fatal tendency to substitute passive agreement for action. Passive agreement for action. Just sit and nod your head. That's right, preacher. Preach it. That's right. Paul says that kind of behavior increases your condemnation. God does not pronounce people righteous because their doctrine is correct. That is not the basis of your righteousness. We are pronounced righteous because we believe the truth and it shows up in our lives. If all we do is read the Scripture, sit passively and listen to the Scriptures, 
rather than actively obey the Scriptures, they become our source of condemnation. God intends for His Word to be lived out in our lives. To show up. Its principles, its precepts, its values. They are to be transforming us. They're to show up in our lives. We're to value the things God values and devalue the things God devalues. There's a Sunday school class going on and called the Truth Project, where they're talking about building a Christian worldview. That's what that's all about. You can boil that down really into a very tight package and say you, you need to value what God values and devalue what God devalues. You need to think God's thoughts after Him. You need to think like God thinks. How? By saturating your heart and mind with the Word of God and then living it out in your life. What does God value? What does God value and what does God devalue or undervalue or not value? Now, I'll just give you a few examples. I'm giving you this list, by the way, so you can just listen. I've given it to you in the handout, including scripture references. You can check it out. God values unity in the body over individualism. That's what God values. Unity over individualism. God values servanthood. Over being self-serving. God values truth over relationships. God values humility over pride. God values hard work over laziness. God values generosity over consumption. God values kindness over cruelty. God values forgiveness over quarrelsomeness. These are the things that God values and devalues. And thus, if we have a, a heart and mind that is saturated in the Word of God, it should begin to play itself out in our life and, and we should begin to become characterized by the things that God values. Why? Verse 13. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Well, what about the Gentiles? We're back to those pesky Gentiles. What about them? Which is us, right? <laughs> what about us? I mean, they don't have the law. What basis does God judge them? They don't have all that privilege. Yet they are most assuredly judged. Verses 14 and 15. For when the Gentiles, there it is, is Paul's answer to the question. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law, a lot of themselves. And that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Twice here in verse 14, Paul stresses the Gentiles have no specific knowledge of the Mosaic law. They don't know. They don't know. Yet, yet, Paul says, they do instinctively, verse 14, right? The things of the law. That which the law embodies, they instinctively do, he says. So there's something going on here. He says they are a law to themselves, right? The end of verse 14, you see it? They are a law to themselves. Now, that, what that does not mean is that they make up their own law. Okay? It does not mean that. 
is not saying that they just make up their own law. What it is saying is that their conduct reveals that they do have a general knowledge of God's requirements. There is a general knowledge that they do have. They know what it is to be virtuous and principled in life. They know what righteousness is and they know what unrighteousness is. Remember, uh, a few months ago now, we were back in chapter 1. And uh, in verse 19 and 20, Paul labors away and says that all of mankind was created with an awareness and an understanding of God through nature, right? Verses 19 and 20, chapter 1. All human beings know God is there. But they've also received, along with, with that knowledge and awareness of God and His existence, they also receive a sense of moral obligation that God has implanted in their hearts. And that's what Paul's talking about here in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 2. There is a, there is a, a moral obligation, there is a universal law of God implanted in the hearts of every single person. What God expects from people has not been hidden from them. They, they do know. They do know. They don't have the specific revelation contained in His Word. They don't know all the details. But they do know the basic principles. That's Paul's argument. That's why God is not partial when He judges. That's why God doesn't show favoritism. That's why God is impartial when He judges. Is because they are judged based on what they know. They do know something. Now, some Gentiles might claim that, you know, since they don't know the law of God, the Mosaic law, they should be exempt from all judgment, right? You know, I didn't know. I'm not guilty. I didn't know. Paul's just going to take that excuse away from them. He's going to demonstrate they do have the law of God, and they have it in some sense. And in the sense that they have it, they're disobedient to it, and thus they are guilty just like the Jews. That puts all people on an even footing before the bar of justice of God. Remember, Paul's overarching purpose in the first three chapters of Romans is to do what? It's to bring the whole world under the condemnation of God. To not allow anybody anywhere on this planet who have ever lived or whoever will live to get away with it. To crush every single person, to knock out every a prop of self-righteousness that anyone can accumulate to themselves, to, to strip everyone bare, to make everyone feel like a worm. If you don't walk out of here on every Sunday morning while we're in these chapters feeling like a worm, okay, you're not listening. This is worm time. Months of worm time. Why? Because until you recognize how desperate you really are, you will never Understand what Christ has done for you. You only will value the atonement of Jesus Christ when you understand your desperate need for it. If you think you're pretty good, you don't need Jesus. You might need a self-help seminar. Maybe some vitamins or something. But unless you understand where you really are before God, then you don't need Jesus. This is all about making you feel bad. I'm trying. I'm doing the best I can. I want to make you feel bad. For your holiness. For your redemption. For your worship. 
for your worship. You won't worship Him truly until you understand what He has truly done for you. All men are guilty before the bar of justice. All right, Paul, well, you've made some pretty bold claims here. How are you going to support this? How are you going to support this claim, Paul, that you're making? Well, verse 15 does it. The evidence that Paul brings forward to support his claim here in verse 15 is that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. The evidence that Paul brings forward to prove his point that all of humanity knows the law of God to one degree or another is their conscience. The work of their conscience. That's what does it. What is the conscience? We all have one. The conscience is a God-given activity of the soul which acts as a judge in the sense of determining whether something is right or wrong. It activates the guilt mechanisms within us when we violate the moral law within Our conscience is constantly sifting, weighing, evaluating every thought, every word, every deed. And it's comparing it against the standard of righteousness and a standard of wickedness. And it's saying you're guilty, you're innocent. You're guilty, you're innocent. Constantly. Your conscience is not the standard of righteousness or wickedness. It is the It is the inner witness that judges you. It's what determines for you what you've done, whether it's right or wrong. Now, a person's conscience can vary in its sensitivity, right? Depending how it's been developed within a person. Some people have very sensitive consciences. Some people don't. But all have one. If the conscience has been properly informed from the Word of God, remember I told you it's a judge. So it's, a, it's given a standard to judge against. If it's been given the proper standard and been properly informed by that standard, then it can be a very reliable guide to our behavior and that which is godly and pleasing. That's a well-formed conscience. If your conscience is improperly informed or it is desensitized through neglect or constant disregard, then it becomes ineffective. It can even become seared. That's what happens with heretics and apostates. Paul says, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, that they are, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. That it has been cauterized. It doesn't work effectively anymore. Conscience is very important. The behavior of a Christian. It's, in fact, it's so important that you should never violate your conscience. Let me just say that right now. You should never, ever violate your conscience. Even if your conscience is improperly informed, you should still not violate it. Because you don't want to inadvertently begin to desensitize it. Don't ignore your conscience. Now, if your conscience is is incorrectly taught or improperly formed, then the the remedy is not to ignore it, but is to what? Properly inform it through the Word of God. Never go against it. Now, back on point. 
Some people object to this idea of a universal moral law. Some object to such things. They don't believe that the law of God is written in the heart of all people. They reject that notion. And the way they support that uh, obligation or objection, rather, is they point out that people's moral standards differ from culture to culture. You'll hear that. And that, in their mind, invalidates the idea that there is one standard, one law. So how do we answer that objection? Is that a valid objection? Well, let me just point out a couple things. First, even the pagans have their own standard of conduct, okay? That which is, is expected to be adhered to, and, and they are punished if they don't. Illustration. A person may have one wife or ten. Okay, there is cultural differences, right? He may have one wife or he may have ten wives. But the one thing he cannot have across all cultures is another man's wife. He cannot take another man's wife. Why? Because that is fundamental to the moral code of God. I'm going to turn you back all the way to Genesis. I want to have made that bold statement. Let me show that to you. Genesis chapter 20, page 19 if you're using a pew Bible. It's just kind of slipped into the text here, but it is so, so significant. Genesis 20, verse 9. It's the encounter between Abraham and the pagan king Abimelech. You remember here, Abraham has lied and passed off his sister Sarah, or his wife Sarah as his sister, right? So the king has taken her into his harem. And God has brought all kinds of judgment upon him. And so now here we have the prophet of God called before the pagan king and taken to task. The pagan king is about to lecture the prophet of God on morality. It's kind of an interesting thing. Verse 9, Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. What did he do? He let him take his wife. How does this pagan king who has a gigantic harem, any woman he wants, how does he know that he can't have this one? It was okay when she was Abram's sister to take her. What's not okay is that she's really his wife. See, even the pagans know. Even the pagans know that basic fundamental Law of God. You may not take another man's wife. Right? In fact, God codifies that for us, doesn't He? It's part of the Ten Commandments. It's the Seventh Commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Back to Romans 2. So even the pagans have an, an internal standard that represents the righteousness of God, re reflects the righteousness of God in certain areas. The other evidence that I would cite is that uh, it's when people object to when they perceive themselves as having been mistreated. You've got to think with me on this one a little bit. But the moment somebody speaks of something as being unfair... 
What they are demonstrating is that regardless of what they say, they really do believe there is an objective standard and that they somehow have gotten the short end of the stick, right? Even the pagans say, that's not fair. That's what the kids say all the time. That's not fair. C.S. Lewis does a great job, I think, in illustrating this whole point about the universal law of God and and how it's internalized within man. Let me just read to you a little bit of what he says. Lewis writes in his book, Mere Christianity, everyone has heard people quarreling. Sometimes it sounds funny and sometimes merely unpleasant. However it sounds, I believe that we can learn something very important from listening to the kinds of things they say. They say things like this. How'd you like it if anyone did the same to you? That's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Why should you shove in first? Kind of a British thing. Give me a bit of your orange and I'll, I gave you a bit of mine. Come on, you promised. People say things like that, Lewis says, every day. Educated people as well as uneducated. Children as well as grown-ups. Now, what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. And the other man very seldom replies, I don't care about your standard. Nearly always he tries to make out that what he has been doing does not really go against the standard, but that if it does, there is some special excuse. It looks, in fact, very much as if both parties had in mind some kind of law or rule of fair play or decent behavior or morality or whatever you like to call it, about which they really agree. And they have. If they had not, they, they might, of course, fight like animals, but they could not quarrel in the human sense of the word. Quarreling means trying to show that the other man is in the wrong. And there would be no sense in trying to do that unless you and he had some sort of agreement as to what right and wrong are. Just as there would be no sense in saying that a footballer had committed a foul unless there was some agreement about the rules of football. I think Lewis is on to it. I think people demonstrate it all the time. They really do know God's standards. They, they appeal to them constantly. This, by the way, uh, you neighborhood ambassadors, this is a very powerful apologetical argument to bring to bear against the atheist of the scoffer. They may deny God, but they cannot avoid living in His world with His rules. And so they constantly appeal to them, while at the same time denying the lawgiver who made them. The law within us is not some sort of utilitarian consensus by which people agree that some types of behavior work out better or more um, productive for our enjoyment. There is an objective standard by which a person's conscience accuses or else excuses them. That's what Paul says. And it works even when no one else is looking. Isn't that the amazing thing? In fact, I would say the conscience seems to, to speak loudest when no one else is looking. Somebody not exposed to the special revelation of God. Somebody who doesn't have the Bible at all. They're not off the hook. 
there's still a trial that goes on. The law is written in their hearts, Paul says, their conscience acts as the judge and their thoughts as the prosecuting and defending attorneys. God does not judge for a standard we don't have. He judges for the standard that we do. And it's a standard, by the way, that people know is true right down deep inside their own heart. And however low that standard might be, they still fail to meet it. When does the conscience judge? Well, it seems to be here in verse 15, there's a, an ongoing judgment. Their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. These are all present participles being used here. Bearing witness, accusing, defending. So there's a, an ongoing basis to it. But according to verse 16, it, it seems to, to say, Paul seems to be saying that the conscience sort of finds its ultimate significance at the last judgment. At the very last judgment. Verse 16, right? On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. I think what he's saying here is that the ongoing accusing and excusing testimony of a, of a person's thoughts that are activated by their conscience is a, is a portrayal of the final verdict that will be rendered at the last judgment. When Christ brings every secret to light, when you've done wrong, your conscience tells you you have done wrong. Like Paul's saying that that occurs throughout your life and it will occur in a, in a great and final way at that last judgment. I think the picture here is that at the last judgment, when your deeds are portrayed, remember we talked about that last time, when your thoughts are expressed, when the secrets of your heart, Paul says, are revealed by God, he's the one who searches the hearts, he brings every thought, word, and deed into the piercing light of his judgment. Included in that will be the inner witness of your conscience and the conflicting thoughts that were known only to you. It'll be, it'll be put up on the big screen. Not only did you do wrong, you knew you were doing wrong all along. There's no place to hide. Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 36, I tell you, every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. The agent of that judgment, Paul says, is Christ Jesus, right? Verse 16. Christ Jesus will judge. He judges by virtue of the fact that He is the living Lord and Savior of mankind. He says it Himself, by the way, in John 5.22, For this reason God has made me judge. Paul says it in Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. Because it is fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Jesus is the judge. And He will judge the secrets of our hearts. We can hide from others. 
We can conceal what we're thinking. We can pretend to be followers of Christ. We know the right words. We know the acceptable behaviors. We know what it takes to get along in the crowd here. To be accepted as part. You just got to hang around a little while or grow up in it. And you learn the inside language. You learn the acceptable behaviors. You know what it, you know, how you can continue to, to pretend that you really are a follower of Jesus Christ when inside you don't, couldn't care a whit about Him. But see, you might fool me. You might fool your mother and father. You may fool your brothers and sisters, Sunday school teachers. But you won't fool God. God knows. He knows whether you believe or whether you don't. And at the last judgment, He's going to reveal it all. He's going to reveal it all. It'll all be there. Can't imagine the devastation of it all. To grow up as a hypocrite and then have it revealed. To have your own conscience put on display as well. Saying, I told you, I told you, I told you, but you wouldn't listen. You knew it was wrong. You did it anyway. Yeah, nobody caught you. But you knew it was wrong. You pretended to believe and you never did. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness, Jesus says. These are really sobering verses. Beloved, your only hope is Christ. That's anyone's only hope. It's to cling to Him by faith, to to grab a hold of Him and hold so tight you'll never let go. Like Jacob, right? Just grab, bless me, and I will not let go. Don't trust in your own good works. Don't think that somehow you can get to heaven hanging on to your parents' coattails. Somehow you're going to get caught up in the updraft, right? That they're godly enough to cover you and them. Because of their faith and their commitment to the Lord and their devotion and self-sacrifice to the people of God, that somehow God will look favorably upon you as their, their child, their offspring. Don't think like that. You need a substitute. You need Jesus Christ. By faith, believing that He died on that cross in your place. And that He rose again from the dead that He might give you life everlasting. That's what it's all about. We have a room over here Sign on the door says prayer room. That's indeed what's behind that door. The vast majority of you have never even seen it. 
We just provide that room for you as a place to go after the service. Perhaps to be alone with God for a few minutes. Pray, talk to Him. And once the service ends, everybody's up and talking and hustle and bustle. And God's been speaking to your heart this morning. His Spirit has been convicting you through what you've heard. You know you're not right with Him and you need to get right with Him. Take the time and go over there. You can be alone by yourself to pray if that's what you choose. Or there will be some people by the lighted cross who would be happy to pray with you, pray for you, answer any questions you might have. Maybe something that I said last week. I spoke pretty strongly about the need for baptism. Because the Bible speaks pretty strongly about the need for baptism as a sign of your discipleship. Maybe God has convicted you this past week about the fact that you have yet to follow in obedience of baptism. You have some questions though. You come. Ask your questions. Don't be a hearer of the Word. Be a doer. Let's pray. Lord God, our desire would be to have bouncy, happy music. Hear something that's really uplifting and causes us to feel good about ourselves. Maybe something that points out how well we've done. But that's not what you have for us. You have instead that we might look intently into the mirror of your holy word and to see an accurate reflection of who we are. Our Father, we don't need a mirror like the ones they have in carnivals that will distort our shape and make us look tall and thin. We need a mirror that will show what we really are. Because Lord, until we can see who we really are, we cannot see how much we really need Christ. Thank You for Jesus. Thank You for the grace to believe. Thank You for the atonement that extinguishes our guilt. Thank You for the indwelling Spirit that breaks the slavery and the bondage to sin and grants us the power to begin to live righteously. Thank You for being our God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.